Welcome to God, Yay or Nay. I'm your host, Noor Kidwai. I'm here to find out how we grow, transform, and become our best selves. How we create meaning in our lives. Come join me on my journey. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. This is your host, Noor Kidwai. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Sarah Salter Kelly. Sarah is author of the book Trauma as Medicine. This is such a great uh, story. I hope you guys enjoy. Sarah was just an amazing guest. It was uh, a lot of fun to talk to. Uh, please check me out on Instagram at NewerKidY. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And we're part of the Comedy Here Often podcast network on 604 Records. So check that out too. Let's get into this week's episode, everybody. My guest this week, Sarah Salter Kelly. Welcome to another episode of God, Yay or Nay. I'm here with Sarah Salter Kelly. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me here today, Noor. I'm, I'm excited to talk about uh, your book and uh, your story and everything because it's a very amazing story on self-transformation, which I always love to talk about. Uh, let me just introduce your book. It's called... Uh, trauma as medicine um that's a very interesting title uh, do you want to maybe kind of uh, explain what that title means to you I, I would love to do that for you i was just looking beside me normally i have my book right here to read a uh to read a piece from it um and uh it's on my desk so i might grab it in a moment but i'll start us off with uh with the awareness that we're living in a time period that 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 is so hungry to create uh that is so hungry for sustainability and so trauma as medicine holds the ideology that it's possible for us to integrate that which has come to pass in our lives to metabolize it and to allow it to feed who we are becoming so we don't actually have to cut off any of our life experiences we don't have to get rid of anything to be more spiritual we don't have to separate ourselves from anything that was shameful or difficult or challenging in our past Rather, we can actually move into it and generate transformation through that act of moving into it that will then create medicine for ourselves, our families, and our communities. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the precipice behind trauma as medicine. And it's not, it's not a, a concept that I, just came to me, you know, I was sitting out on a mountain one day meditating. <laughs> I thought, oh, fuck, I'm going to create this you know, experience. This is actually 25 years of learning to digest and integrate the homicide of my mother and make peace with her perpetrator. And so I, I share my story with as much <clears throat> intention and love um, time and time again, because I think it's important for each of us to recognize that we can place intention on the transformation that we want to create and we do not need to deny or ignore or get rid of anything that came to pass, that we have the ability within ourselves to integrate and transform. And so that's some of the kind of the backbone or the, the history behind it. As you know, I'm, I was 20 years old when my mother was murdered and she was attacked in the parking garage of her work by a stranger on a, on a cold winter morning 
we didn't know what had happened to her or where she was for 10 days. All that was discovered the first day was um, her vehicle with a lot of blood in it and a few things on the ground floor of the parkade. And so, you know, she was a, a, a missing person. Mm-hmm. And in that experience, I learned how to be with the most horrendous possibilities, the worst things that we can imagine, because you don't have a choice, right? You know, quite literally, this has happened. There's nothing I can do to control it. Um, My option, obviously, is to um, either to learn how to be with it to the best of my ability um, um, or not. Mm -hmm. You know, and and the or not maybe would, uh, you know, example of that would be fall into, um, uh, uh, you know, a really lengthy period of depression or despair or addiction. And Mm -hmm. so my, my choice for me was to breathe, right, to to recognize I had the ability to breathe and to get through each day, Uh, you know, breath by breath. I actually smoked a lot back then. So it was probably cigarette by cigarette. (laughs) You know, and, and, and that was that and, and a, and a beautiful part perhaps of my journey or a helpful component, Nora, is that my mother was a life coach. And so before anybody knew what life coaching was, you know, back in the eighties and the um, nineties, and it was 95 that she died. So I was around transformational medicine from the time I was a little girl. So I, I was quite conscious of some of the power that we have within ourselves to heal. So I would have, you know, her voice in my head guiding me throughout a lot of the grief and trauma that came up and, and her body was found in an abandoned farmhouse 10 days after um, she'd gone missing. Uh, You know, I mean, she was brutalized. She was raped. There was a big attack. You could tell all of this stuff from her body and part of the experience of anyone who has gone through losing a loved one to violence is that you then have to unpack and be with and digest the reality of all of that violence, right? Mm-hmm. And the reality that this has happened to somebody that you love. And you, and again, you can't change that. That's the truth of it. So then the inquiry becomes, how do I be with this in a way that is, um, helps me to integrate so it doesn't become the thing that is haunting me it doesn't become the thing that renders me powerless time and time again and 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 I, as i've said this has been a 25 year journey in the those first 10 years you can bet your ass it would have rendered me powerless yeah of course if somebody would say how did your mother die and I wouldn't, I I, I would go, I wouldn't want to talk about it because i would know that all of a sudden i'd have to unpack murder and you know it's it's, yeah that's I couldn't imagine um yeah yeah. I want to say yeah sorry about that like that has to be like something just so brutal to go through at uh, such a young age um I I also wanted to say like you said a couple times um you could have either ran away ignore hide all of that pain that trauma all of that stuff or learn to be with it allow it to be and uh I think this when it comes to healing and talking about trauma these are the kind of two directions we have our choice to be with um and isn't that true when you like the trauma you experience is something like that's very extreme like uh, I think a lot of us in our transformational journeys we have we still have uh, discomforts and 
traumas that are smaller that we're trying to escape. But that's kind of the, 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 the heart of the decision right there, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. to either ignore and run away from or be with it and learn how to be with it and allow it to be. And that's where the healing or the metabolizing, like you said, comes from. Is that how you kind of see it? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's the bottom line. It's do we move into it? right? Or do we turn away from it? And that's, that can be a daily choice, a daily practice. So you think of our, our desire, especially people who are versed in transformational medicine, there's the awareness of the desire, let's say for authenticity, for embodiment. Well, embodiment means we can't be living in our heads. We have to actually quite literally be living in our body. And it's in our body that we store our response to past traumas that are unresolved and so the more that we're in our bodies the uh the greater our chance to be aware of anything that perhaps is unresolved and that we need to contend with uh you know and it'll it just naturally comes to the surface our bodies are so wise you know that if we allow for that wisdom to rise to the surface you know after about 10 years after my mom died it was when i realized i hadn't I hadn't addressed her perpetrator in any shape or form. You know, he had been found guilty of murder one. Um, and shortly after he went to prison, he suicided in prison. Oh, wow. So I think part of me for a long time thought, like, what was the point in all of this? I was a, a young woman who had a very deep sense of purpose in life. And so I was kind of like, what, what the heck, right? This doesn't make any sense. Um, and what had come up in the media is that, you know, he'd grown up in the system. Uh, he was a First Nations man and had been subject to like 50 scoop and um, foster care and residential schools. So I think that because I was aware that he had gone through his own suffering, I didn't address my own. You know, mm. I thought, what's the point? And at about the 10 year mark, it became obvious that I could feel him near me, feel him haunting me essentially. And initially I was trying to push my thought of him out of my mind. I was, I did everything I could. I was like, I don't want to think about you. Like, why are you in my head? Get out of my head. Like you're dead. What's the point? You killed my mom. Go away. Mm-hmm. Um, I would even do silly things. Like, I don't know if you remember kids in the hall, but I'd oh, like, yeah. Wish his hat. I'd be like, go away. And, but isn't this the truth that when there is something that we need to deal with, it's going to come into our psyche. And whether that's our own subconscious telling us that it's because we need to address it, or whether it's actually the spirit of whoever this, this person is that you need to address. Um, I don't know if it matters what the source is. The important mm-hmm. part is that we have a decision to make. Are we going to move into or confront what is arising or are we going to turn away from it? So it was that experience of moving into and addressing my feelings towards him, expressing my anger and um, telling the truth about my own powerlessness that actually instigated an experience of compassion that I was totally not expecting and pursued a journey that I speak to in the book as well about collective healing. It it, um, gave rise to my awareness of shared humanity and the, the recognition that there was more to him than just being the bad guy. That if I allowed myself to shift into the collective 
and let go of my need to vilify him, that there were also, he was also somebody's son. He was somebody's brother. He was somebody's uncle, father. So there was more to this person than just the bad guy that showed up in the parkade that day. And if I could allow myself to contemplate that there was more to him than just the bad guy, what would happen then? So that, that kind of part of the quest or the journey led me on an experience where I eventually went to the satellite first nation, which is the, um, the, the first nation from which he has come. I worked with a former chief to learn more about the history of the satellite Cree. And, and it really brought to the threshold for me, my awareness of the impact of colonization in Canada, uh, inclusive of the fact that I believe my mom's death is completely related to colonization in Canada. Mm -hmm. And our unwillingness as a majority population to acknowledge and recognize that wound, you know, the desire of the majority population to push that away and get rid of it and ignore it. And, um, and you know, Peter Brighteyes, who, who killed my mother, Sheila Salter, that his act of violence um, came from that history of trauma. And so we can't, we can't um, separate our traumas from each other either is that they we impact each other and that's an important teaching in the book too so it travels the story of personal healing to collective offering tools and journal exercises and ceremonies for the reader to integrate into their own life and obviously you don't have to have an experience as as as, as grandiose for lack of a better term as as homicide and forgiving a perpetrator it can apply to our own childhood abandonment wounds. It can apply to any of the ways that we, um, that we have neglected or, or abandoned or let go or let down ourselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, I, I honestly, that's uh, insane. I can't believe you actually even went to the actual reserve and try to learn about the history. Like I, I can understand how hard that would have been for you. And, yeah. and like, is that like this whole process of like trying to heal through this wounds of like, I don't know if it's forgiving your uh, perpetrator, is it just humanizing your perpetrator? Like how, how long of a process was that? Um, the first vision I had, so when I, I had decided to create a ceremony at about the 10 year mark and by ceremony, I mean, uh, um, you know, process where I could, I could pray. This isn't using any plant medicine, but where I could call in what was sacred to me, and I could instigate an experiential um, process where I could address my feelings towards him. And so, you know, this was in um, 06. And, uh, you know, and it might have looked like drumming or screaming out loud or writing a letter or um, anything I could think of that would address the feelings I felt inside of me. And I, I did this organically over the course of nine months, once a week. Okay. So I started that off because I realized that I could feel him around me all the time and that I needed to face him. I needed to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I was also a young mom. I had twin girls that would, were in kindergarten and I had a, a six month old son that would nap for an hour and a half. So I was like, here's my time frame. We're getting yeah. this done. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. And this is what's happening. So after about two and a half months, Noor, of being in this ceremony once a week, 
I, I had a vision one day and because I've had a, a practice with earth-based traditions since I was about 16 and I'm 46 now. So for, for 30 years, it's easy for me to go on journeys or to, to experience visions in my meditation with intention. Okay. And I had this vision where I saw myself sitting on this sand wall facing this pyramid that was in the South direction. And I, I had my arm around this little boy and he was about 10 years old and I was holding him to me in the way that you would love up your own child. And I was comforting him, encouraging him to address something he needed to address, which I knew was in this pyramid. And all of a sudden my conscious mind kicked in and I realized that that was woman was me. And then that little boy was Peter Bright Eyes, my mother's perpetrator. Hmm. And I pulled myself out of that vision with a whole bunch of what the fucks. And, and also, and then an immediate shame of how could I have these feelings of love and compassion for this man who had caused so much harm in my family and who had murdered my mother? Like, what, what would my family think? So yet I couldn't deny that vision and that it instigated, it's like it planted the seed of compassion in me that became curiosity. That compassion did not override the anger that was still present. It wasn't like, oh, I'm compassionate now. Yay, sunshine and lollipops. Of course. No, it was like, fuck you, compassion. I'm doing this ceremony to get angry. This was not my plan. You know, like you're hijacking my, my experience. And yet I had, I had prayed for the highest potential outcome. And, um, and my greatest value is freedom. So I had asked for, show me how to be liberated, guide me to experience freedom. And in, in that deep act of listening, I couldn't deny that this compassion started to grow. So over the course of a few years, so this was in 06, it was the summer of 2010 that I had another vision in a, in a group ceremony that I was in that um, where one of my helping spirits told me that I needed to go and walk on the land of his ancestors. And I had to integrate his history with my ancestral history and understand how they wove their way together. Coming home from that in 2010, I thought, well, how do I do that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I remembered that he had a sister because she had been on a CBC documentary called Beating the Streets that was out the year after my mom died in 96. And just in how small worlds go, it was uh, like a friend of my aunt's friend that produced <clears throat> this documentary. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I found her on Facebook. Um, and I was, I was really nervous in reaching out because, what do you say? I had this vision around a ceremonial fire that I should connect with you. And I think your brother killed my mom, Um, (laughs) right? Like, what do you do? There's no, there's no template at all. And so I really had to listen to my heart and and trust in the guides. Um, And, you know, I was, I was, I was tentative because I also knew that I wanted something from her, but I didn't know what it was. You know, Mm. I couldn't articulate it. It was so, um, it it was in such a felt sense. She was, she was actually quite uh, uh, kind and forthcoming 
in our exchange of conversation. However, she wasn't living at Saddle Lake at the time. She was actually in BC and I knew I needed to go to Saddle Lake. So I contacted the band, the chief and council, and I was put in touch with a former chief who was appointed to work with me. And essentially my, my inquiry with him was just, I just want to learn more. Like, here's my experience. I want to understand perhaps what conditions were in place that instigated this guy becoming a murderer. We don't just wake up one day, one day and we're murderers. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. And so what happened that set that person on that path? Um, <clears throat> and so I drove out to Saddle Lake in November of 2010, uh, the day after my, um, my birthday, I guess I would have been 35. And Eric Large is the person I was put in touch with. And we ended up forming a relationship where he invited me to come and do trauma as medicine healing circles at a few different events, which ended up being a lot of my own healing. So even though I was facilitating these circles, I also had many elders and many folks in the circle that would share their stories. Mm. And so that happened in some of the workshops that he held. He worked for the Indian Residential Schools Resolution Health Services. Uh, I never know if I'm going to remember if I'm going to get all those words. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he had me come to um, when they had a culture camp. And so there was just so much learning in that process of digesting the experience of mom's homicide and understanding like, how had this come to pass? And how can I bring a greater sense of meaning and purpose to my understanding of it? And so when I'm talking about transforming our trauma into medicine, we are the only ones who set a limit on it. Mm. You know, anything is possible. We can definitely go into stay at our, our, our personal um, place, or we can move into a collective place and start recognizing that whatever has transpired for each of us as individuals has some sort of component in the whole collective. And if we are willing to bring our light and our understanding to that, amazing shit can happen. Yeah, no kidding. Wow, honestly, that's such a, that's such a insane story. I just couldn't believe... Uh... It takes a lot of courage to actually like go through that whole process. I uh, mm-hmm. couldn't imagine because it feels like it's a lot easier just to run away from it and push it down, which I think, sadly, I think a lot of us would do that. Not, yeah, I, I have compassion for that too, because I know how hard the process is. So I understand yeah. that. Um, so when you were saying though, when you first started doing these ceremonies to try to, because you said you felt the, presence of uh, your um, mother's perpetrator so mm-hmm. you whether that's subconscious or a spirit you knew something was there and something needed to be healed or dealt with and then you said you started doing these ceremonies where you're like I need to process these emotions that are coming through me so and I, I bet a lot of that emotion was probably rage mm-hmm. and were you just allowing the rage to flow and that's where you kind of allowed it when on the other side of that rage you kind of got to the compassion is that how it worked well, the thing is, is that our mind wants to put things in order um, and our mind want, because then we feel like if we can put something in order, we can kind of quantify um, 
the kind of the how to part. However, when we're working with the symbolic and when we're in that place of, of energetic or in, in spiritual healing, that 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 the steps like sometimes we have to throw all of our steps out the window mm-hmm. and and sit with a core intention and so because my core intention was freedom i hate the feeling of being trapped mm. and um at all i mean it even i can track this value newer back to i left home when i was 15 and a lot of it came from feeling like my parents were too strict that that's like a you know very short version of it um, and my desire for freedom. And so when we set a core value and trust that the universe is going to reflect everything that we need, that's what happens. So the, the, I, I did it so much in the moment where if rage was present, I would just tune in like what is present today? Mm-hmm. You know, do I need to scream and shout? Do I need to write a letter? Do I need to have a fire? Do I need to, you know, play my drum really loud. Like, what do I need today in this moment? Do I need to speak to him? A lot of it was speaking directly to him because I hadn't done that before. And we do have energy cords that connect us to anybody that has done us wrong. And oftentimes, particularly in in some forms of energy healing, there's this idea that you can just cut off and you can just, all you have to do is cut the cords. Well, cutting the cords isn't uh, sustainable when you haven't addressed the problem that is connected to the cord. It's just going to grow right back. Mm-hmm. The idea is how can you bring it into a place of neutral reciprocity where it's not pulling anything from you and you're not feeling bound by it. So how do you do that? Mm. And that is through a process of awakening to the truth of what your responsibility is to it. And that responsibility is what emotions do I have to express? What anger do I have to express? Um, And when we follow that organically, so we're totally not in our heads. We're just like, we're in the cathartic, the the blah, you're just in it. As, As you know, something comes out on the other side and we never know what that will be. We just know that it changes and it, Mm -hmm. and it happens every time, whether this is, um, going through my own personal experiences or in for the years that I've spent teaching energy healing or shamanism and guiding other people into their core self is that something comes out on the other side. Mm-hmm. And you were saying like, it's listening to your body at the end of the day. It's like you said, your body has the wisdom, like your body knows. I, I really do feel like from the years of doing like working with ayahuasca myself or uh, working with different types of like meditation and uh, breath work. I, I really do feel that uh, your body has this kind of drive to become whole or drive to heal. And like you said, uh, when you get into the work where it requires you just to listen to your body and be with it, there is something that kind of pushes you towards some sort of wholeness or healing. Yeah. And, and I think that what's so beautiful about ayahuasca is that she gives the, the person who's participating in, in ceremony such a visceral example that you hold this energy inside of yourself. And so somebody might feel like they're separate from any of their wounds from the past or any of their own behaviors where they're letting themselves down then you go through the ceremony of ayahuasca and you have to confront that 
And so you're confronting the truth, which is Mm -hmm. here's this pain that's still unresolved. Here's this experience that you're still holding inside of you. And then, you know, she quite lovingly can help you to purge that, or it comes out another way. (laughs) Um, And, and the beauty of that, I mean, there's a similarity in the Caro tradition, which comes from the high Andes of Peru. And I have studied a lot with the elders and indigenous teachers there. And it, again, is the awareness that we can digest heavy energy, that we can actually pull what is difficult into our bodies and digest it and process it. Mm. We don't have to be afraid of it. You know, so there's this this when we separate it out and keep expending all of our resources and energy trying to get rid of what we don't like we end up i think as we get older living smaller and smaller lives because it's like it's like you know having horse blinders on where you can't look at all this stuff around you because you haven't dealt with any of it a hundred percent and you know what I've, I've, i've always noticed that whenever i get into more anxious states or uh get into states where i'm trying to push stuff around and like you know i i, I had it like I just did ayahuasca maybe a month and a half ago but before that I was having like a really rough year where I was dealing with a ton of anxiety and it was a lot with my family that I was dealing with it because my dad uh, just had like a really bad stroke a year ago and uh, so this was like a lot of what was uh, around me but you're right when when I when you get into those anxious states you close down and um, I I was kind of dealing with my anxiety sometimes I was maybe like at the beginning of the year, I was drinking a little bit, which also closes you down or I stopped drinking for half the year then. And then I was also just kind of like you were saying, just in my head and like finding ways to close down my perception, just because the more I closed it down, the less of the anxiety I was feeling. And uh, that was one really good thing. When I did the ceremony, it really showed me where my anxiety was coming from and it helped me purge it out. And it also showed me that it's not something that the medicine itself is going to heal on its own. It's saying you have to go back and uh, do the healing yourself. Like the work is, and like the work is a continuous thing, but now I'm more in the mindset of like, all right, allow the work to happen on its own. And it's a much better place to be in. That's beautiful. And I mean, exactly. It becomes a part of our life practice or daily practice, right? The medicine is there to, remind us of that the power of being connected the power Mm -hmm. of and and stepping out of the personal in so many ways so that we can start to see the greater picture and and feel it with all of these senses that are engaged inside of us and then in the day-to-day practice it's like okay well how do I bring my awareness into that space because we still have to deal with what's challenging so how do we how do we still come from love when we're dealing with what's challenging and we have so many opportunities to practice that in this time period. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm interested in then uh, in your like whole healing journey, especially with like dealing with your uh, mother's perpetrator, like where did the, did the plant medicine, was that part of it or was it where you kind of passed that when you uh, came on to the plant medicine? Uh, that's a really good question. And when I was putting the book together and, and really needing to go over the past 25 years or even actually over my whole life and bring forth some of that um, awareness, I would say that the initial way that plant medicine impacted me 
my healing with mom's homicide would be the plant medicine I took before she was ever murdered. So when I was 16, 17 and 18, I did a lot of LSD and, and psilocybin, a lot of mushrooms. And each experience became such a deeply profound spiritual teaching and an awareness of my own connection to the universe and understanding of my own self and my own patterning and my own conditioning and the way in which I responded to the world around me in such a way that they gave me tools, which when partnered with the study I was doing at the time of, of Wicca, of the earth-based old Celtic tradition, mm -hmm. as well as personal growth and self-help, all of those things together formed a platform that I could trust in, in healing mom's homicide. So that by the time that I first went to the Amazon, which would have been in um, 08 or 09, okay. I had already gone through the process of forgiving her perpetrator. And so <clears throat> some of it was part of my training with the um, shamanic teacher I was apprenticing with. So some of that was the reason I first went to the Amazon and then a deep curiosity. And, and as um, my understanding of ayahuasca enhanced and I became so aware of how it can help people with trauma, that also added to my curiosity. And so for me in the journey, I would always in the first couple of times I went to the Amazon, I would check into myself to see if there was anything left <clears throat> with, with mom's homicide energetically. And there wasn't, but I would, I would double check. And then I would, I would push myself to look more. I would make sure that I thought of as many horrible things to, like, are you sure you're done with this? And finally the teaching was, yes, let this go. You don't have to continue to go into this level of violence or this level of um, trauma because it's been addressed. So it was more of things that I saw about myself would be the deepest teachings for me with ayahuasca is the, um, is the ways in which to trust myself and trust my body. Right. And, and, and isn't that what each of us need, regardless of what our um, wound is that we're addressing. If we know that we can trust ourselves and trust our bodies, then whatever's rising to the surface becomes addressed. Mm -hmm. Whether that is a history of addiction or whether that is an unresolved childhood trauma or a present day experience of grief, ayahuasca shows us how to be with what is challenging. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, I honestly, just even doing this podcast over and over, talking with different people with different modalities yeah. who talk about uh, their healing or self-development or whatever it is, it always comes back to listening to the body. And it's it's hilarious how all of these different uh, traditions, they just find different ways to come I'm back to it. the body. Totally. Right? And it's just <laughs> like the breath, you know, what do you have? What's the one tool you can always count on? your breath. Exactly. And it, you know, and, um, <clears throat> I've been, uh, been really curious about and working with psilocybin a lot lately. And, um, I really love the power that it has to guide people in really, uh, pinpointing where you're holding trauma or energy in your body. Mm. So she's come back into my life in the last few years. And, um, and there's something 
for me to be sad about working with something that grows on the land that no I, I bet yeah I mean, where you're at is it a isn't it growing naturally close to where you are um yeah I think so I haven't, I haven't harvested <laughs> myself but I did just get a really great identification book I, I harvest all sorts of other mushrooms um edibles and uh um however I'm really curious about that's I'm definitely be shopping when I'm in the forest this summer <laughs> yeah um, but she is like such a great teacher in psilocybin. And so we can create um, ceremony around that too. And, and, and it's just a different way of finding what is in your body and feeling it and releasing it than what I've noticed with ayahuasca. And one isn't better than the other, just a different way. It's a different and uh, I've never, so I've done mushrooms before or psilocybin, but I've always done it more as like uh, hiking and, uh, you know, go and like uh, have some fun in the forest kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I've never done it in a ceremonial setting or, uh, or you could, cause like I, I, it, I've never done it with intention. Let's just say that. Right. Cause like, I think right. when you have an intention with any psychedelic, it gives, uh, it, it really can hone in on the healing and be like, okay, let's actually yeah. go and observe this. And like, you yeah. can, then you can feel the, um, the actual medicine working with you. Um, yes. yeah. can you, what, what do you kind of see as like, uh, the difference in the feeling or the energy or anything between ayahuasca and, uh, uh psilocybin, um, or any differences can you describe? I know yeah. it might be hard. Um, I think it is hard to describe the difference. I would say that psilocybin, I notice can give a more fine-tuned, um, direct understanding of where heavy energy is held in the body and a connection of what it's related to. So I can track it easier okay. in a way to release it. Whereas ayahuasca can tune me more into the collective and into um, uh, opens me more so to the to the uh, what's the word I even want the ancestral or the star nations or some of the bigger guides that are in the supporting roles. Mm. And so it's not that those don't show up with psilocybin; they do just in a different way. And so mm. psilocybin, it feels to me if it's a ceremony with intention where you're also being with what's coming up. So it's not a social experience. It's a no. very intentional ceremony where you're going inwards and also perhaps somebody's using music to help you in that journey of going inwards and you're recognizing and sitting with what's coming up. It's, yeah. so it's, it can be as equally profound with that intention. And I think sometimes for each individual, it would be a matter of what what resonates with your own energy body because some people might resonate more with ayahuasca some people might resonate more with psilocybin um for me it's the the ceremony that's really integral as a ceremonialist that's the part that i think is is just really important mm -hmm. no i uh, yeah and ceremony i think it's a hundred percent one of the big things with it um when you do the ceremony with uh psilocybin like how is it is it different than ayahuasca because i guess like ayahuasca it's it's kind of the same i would think like just you're trying to do it in the dark you're trying to do it with intention you're right. trying to do it with other people with intention so like you can feed off each other's energies maybe or how right. does that yeah you know? 
I think um, Noor is that it's every every medicine person or every shaman holds ceremony differently. That's been mm. what I've witnessed through the years. And so what what's happening is whatever is coming through that medicine person in their own capacity to hold space, um, it's going to be unique according to their way, whether it's a medicine ceremony, or I've been to a whole bunch of sweat lodges in different traditions through the years, all that, you know, no plant medicine, but all that have come from different traditions. And so everybody holds space differently. And so um, what, what my preference is, is that there is a similarity to an ayahuasca ceremony in that people are in their own space. And um, that there is music that is helping to hold the space the whole time. Um, so people are turning, turning and tuning all of their awareness inwards and mm. in, in recognizing that they're having their own experience, that it is mostly in the dark preferences outside. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 So the preference is that it's outside and obviously that just depends on, um, the time of the year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that is the preference. So sometimes indoors, if it's um, just weather permitting, um, but preference is outside with a fire, connecting with the land, so that you're really in that place of invocation of, of support from the spirit of the land. And um, and also the way that engages your felt sense, you know, if you're watching lightning on the horizon, or if you're feeling the wind on your skin and you're smelling the, um, the trees and that just, that creates such a different experience. Um, <clears throat> I had this really beautiful experience in a ceremony with some colleagues last summer, and, um, we were in the middle of the woods, uh, all, all night. Mo almost all night watching the moon come through the trees and um one of the things that can be so profound when you're out in the woods in the dark in a kind of a foreign environment actually is i could quite literally see um what i would call the fae the fairy people the little white lights moving through the darkness of the tree <laughs> popping up here and there and and so there's this there's such a deep connection to the magic of the land. And I guess it reminds me in some ways of going to the Amazon where we might've had ceremony in a Malacca, but you know, the Malacca, all of the um, walls were just made of mosquito netting. Yeah, so you could see. Yeah. <clears throat> you could see and you can hear everything, you smell everything. And yeah. then at the end of the ceremony, we had to walk to our tambos, our, our cabins, and sometimes that was a bit of a walk through the woods, yeah. you know, and you wouldn't be given anything to walk with. Um, maybe just a, a little candle. I, th yeah. I remember doing these little kerosene lamps, but then, you know, you're so sensitive to light with ayahuasca. You're holding the candle. Oh, it's so <laughs> <laughs> Right. You're trying not to look at it, but, um, but that was part of the process. That was part of the experience that um, also showed you your connection to the land. And so I know that, that a lot of my work um, on this planet is to help people to feel and help them to connect to what is here outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's amazing. <laughs> I remember doing the same when I went to the Amazon for my first ceremony for ayahuasca, like coming out of the Maloka, you just got to, I had a little flashlight, I put it on the ground and it was just <laughs> Bugs everywhere and they just scattered. <laughs> I was like, this is this sucks. I don't like I don't want to be connected to this. This is too much. <laughs> what is the 
headlamps are the worst. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> flying at your face. <laughs> That's not what you want. No. And there's so many bugs. Yeah, it's there's so rough. many bugs. There was this one time we went really far up river outside of Iquitos in the Amazon to a a lodge that was most, I, I don't, I don't know. I actually still to this day, don't know where we were. We were about five hours from Iquitos between or more between boat and car. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and so the lodge wasn't even properly like protected against bugs. Like it, the netting wasn't any good. There were so many bugs in God. that ceremony to the extent that the second day, some of the locals went and found a, a termite's nest and they set the termite's nest on fire under the, the lodge during ceremony so that the smoke would maybe help with yeah, some yeah. of the, but then you're also breathing in all that smoke. And you're <laughs> like, ha, 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 ha. you're not winning, I guess. <laughs> no, and so, I mean, I had to keep reminding myself, okay, this, you can make this be all about the bugs or all about the smoke, or you can just recognize that that's a part of it and not attach. Mm -hmm. And um yeah not an easy feat to accomplish <laughs> no um all right I, I wanted to ask you so when we're talking about ayahuasca in the jungle that's the shipibo tradition but you went to peru well there's also. many there's many actually newer and there, so yeah oh yeah there's many 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 and so um my um i went to capitari and don luis uh, coquiton was the ayahuasquero um, and though he would have Shipibo people come, he was actually, he was from Matacamiri. I don't think that he was necessarily Shipibo. I'd mm. have to, and I'd have to look up his lineage again to remember. And so, but what I've noticed through, through studying and working with it through the years is that, again, it's, there's many, many different Indigenous people throughout the that whole Amazon basin and um, in as much there's many many different ways that the traditions it's, come together it's crazy yeah quite a few um I was also interested in the um the Inca tradition that you went and studied because this one doesn't have to do with ayahuasca mm -hmm. so I was wondering what yeah. drew you to that uh tradition and what's the name of it again just so I don't say it yeah I... uh so the indigenous nation themselves are called the Caro. So that's Q apostrophe E-R-O. And so the Kero are believed to be the last of the, the Inca and that they lived at such high altitudes in the Andes. And I've been up to their villages on three occasions. Um, and we're talking like uh, 15,000 feet, like mm. super, super high that you have to chew a whole bunch of coca leaves to prevent altitude sickness. And, um, and so their tradition remained intact and one of their elders started teaching Westerners, I think in about the 90s. And he had been discovered by an anthropologist in the 50s at one of their sacred events, which was called the Koyariti Festival, which would happen at their sacred mountain of Sinankara. And this anthropologist had gone to this event and he just noticed that this one particular indigenous group really stood out, their weavings. Um, here, I have some here. Okay, oh, so they're, wow. they're yeah, weaving were so um, unique. And even though there's weavings all around the Andes, their weavings were really unique in their designs and their language stood out different from the regular dialect of Quechua. And so this anthropologist recognized that 
um, their language connected them to the kind of the royal Quechua, which hadn't been used for, you know, since the conquistador, since the Spanish had come. And so in his studying and working with this one man, Don Manuel Quispe, uh, he came to see that their sacred traditions were still practiced and started to work with him. And so, um, and so through the years, many Westerners have gone to Peru and some have made it to work specifically with the Quetero and some have taken some of the Quetero teachings and integrated it in ways with some Western teachings. I started off, I went there first in 08. I was studying um, something that had been called the Inca medicine wheel in Northern Alberta, but it was being taught by a woman from Massachusetts. And I went up there knowing that I needed a little bit of help to understand all these experiences I've shared with you that, you know, and in um, finding compassion for my mom's perpetrator and um, going through this, this ceremony with him and really metabolizing homicide. So much was coming to me that came from more of a shamanic lens. But I thought maybe you should get a teacher, Sarah, because I was always in such a place, you know, I come from the punk scene of like, I, I can do this all by myself. I don't need anybody. Again, this is, you know, a, a girl or a obviously woman, but who, who's on her own at 15 years of age. And so there was a lot of times where I did have to figure stuff out myself. Um, however, my mom's spirit very much guided me to take this program. And this woman also took groups to Peru and I ended up apprenticing with her for five years. And in that time period, I went to Peru with her on five occasions and each trip included, um, sitting with, uh, or, or camping around one of the sacred mountains. And so in the Caro tradition, they believe that the Apus, the mountains are, are spirits that, um, it's hard to explain it. It's not quite like an angelic spirit. Um, however, similar to that. And the more relationship that you form with this, with the mountains and the land that you are in, uh, the more that it anchors you and connects you with not just the land, but with your reason for coming here and your own connection to spirit. Mm. And so that's more of a kind of a really brief Coles notes version there's a um there's a really powerful teaching that comes through the Keto tradition about Aini and Aini A-Y-N-I is becoming more and more well known by Westerners because it's the awareness of reciprocity and that mm. we need to be in reciprocity with all of our relations which includes this would um, include what I spoke of about energy cords earlier. So we are responsible for our relationship. An energy cord is like a relationship. And when we bring ourselves into Aini, into reciprocity with ourselves, our families, our communities, the Pachamama, the mother earth, the land around us, the, um, the sky, the stars, the moon, the sun, all of that. When we're in that place of Aini, then we're in a, a, a place of balance where we can fully step into our purpose and our reason for being here. And so um, almost all of the foundation of the Karo tradition is around Aini. Are you in Aini or out of Aini with yourself and your actions and your words and your day-to-day -day practice? And it, and it sounds really simple but what I've learned through the years of studying spirituality is that the simpler the more it works I love that you're right 
I, I agree completely. The simpler, the more it works. Yeah, ah, that's beautiful. Thanks for uh, sharing that. That's uh, yeah. uh, I really like that. Um, all right, Sarah, I, I honestly, this uh, whole uh, podcast is so amazing. I really appreciate having you on. I got one more question. Wait, it's, ready. Uh, it's the question of the podcast. So uh, Sarah Salter Kelly, God, yay or nay? Oh, God, yay. i was thinking uh you would get something like that (laughs) absolutely yay so many yays we are so lucky yeah (laughs) uh sarah honestly i uh loved having you on the podcast and uh please let my audience know um where they can get your book uh and anything you want to promote uh please let them know right now yeah absolutely and thank you so much for having me Nora. i've enjoyed chatting with you um you can go to my website, folks. So sarahsalterkelly.com. You can buy my book there. If you are in Alberta or BC, it is at a lot of your local bookstores. So Edmonton area, especially um, uh, it's at Chapters, Audrey's, Ascendant. It's at, um, it's at a few in Calgary as well. So what you can do is you can just message me, go and look at your bookstore if they don't have it tell them they need to have trauma as medicine in their bookstore. What are they thinking that they don't have it? <laughs> it? It will be an international bestseller on my website. You'll also find some online events and some in-person events. I'm doing a women's retreat in Alberta last weekend of May near Pigeon Lake. And okay. I'm about to upload a whole bunch of more events in BC as well. So join my email list, drop me a note, add me on Facebook or Instagram, Sarah Salter Kelly. Awesome. And I'll uh, make sure to toss your website in my podcast description so people can uh, get your book easily. Um, Thank you so much for doing this, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Nora, for having me. All right. That was another episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. Please like and subscribe to the podcast. Give it a good rating. That always helps. And share it with like-minded people. I really do appreciate that. You can check me out at NoorKidY on Instagram or check out my website, NoorKidY.com. You can see my comedy. You can see my comedy dates that are coming up and all that other information. We're part of the comedy here often, Podcast Network on 604 Records. But I'll see you next time on another episode of God Yay or Nay.